Charlie Nguyen. And I'm Jeff Nelder. Welcome to the Adventure Time with Charlie and Jeff, the podcast where the future of workforce development meets a frontier of technology and investment. We create this thought leadership platform to empower our workforce by exploring all the different intersections of capital investment, groundbreaking technologies like AI, like blockchain, and then economic growth, and then the ever-evolving landscape of regulatory policies. So whether you're on a short jog or a stroll, our weekly episodes are designed to offer you a fresh perspectives and tangible insights in bite-sized format. Yeah, we're talking about bite-sized, actionable insights, things you can do something with. These are designed to empower your contribution, whatever that contribution is that, as you see it, to upgrading the U.S. workforce, either in your workplace or as part of a larger movement. So if that's what you're looking for, you've come to the right spot. That's awesome. Well, we're really excited to welcome our expert guest today, the Professor James C. Oliverio. Welcome, James. Thank you. I'm glad to be with you guys. This is exciting. Yep. I've known James for a few years and just so incredibly happy and excited that he's um, joining us today as, as, as our expert guest. James served as the uh, founding executive director for the University of Florida Digital Worlds Institute from 2001 to 2023, and he's currently professor of digital arts and sciences and also a professor of music. You know, what's amazing about James is not only he's a professor, but he's also incredibly talented and gifted um, in music. James holds five Emmy Awards from the National Academy of Television, Arts, and Sciences. Charlie, you didn't tell me that he won five Emmy Awards. Well, I mean, this guy is amazing. James also served as the artistic consultant on a number of projects with jazz legend Witten Marsalis. Before coming to University of Florida, he was the composer in residence and director of the Audio Lab in the Graphics, Visualization, and Usability Center in Georgia Tech College of Computing. Wow. I mean, wow. So we will dive into a couple of topics really relevant to our inaugural podcast in a little bit. But first, let's cover some news, what we consider to be the latest core insights that we've seen recently. So, Jeff, what's crack-a-lacking, man? Well, there's a lot that's been going on. But what's really been popping for me right off the bat is the hundreds of thousands of union members who've been striking. You know, and it, it's it's significant for reasons. Recently, the the Writers Guild ratified a new contract. And the interesting thing is they weren't just striking over the same old things. They, were, they weren't just striking to get, you know, a, a, you know, this much of a bump on their wages or this much of a bump in their benefits packages. They were striking in response to an existential issue, an, an issue that they regard as existential. It's the, the role that AI gets to play in relation to uh, original works. So what what the what the Writers Guild was concerned about was that if they created uh, a property and that property was either used to train AI or an AI was later hired uh, in order to create a sequel to that property, where did that leave the writers? And previously, before the strike, uh, that left them nowhere. The property was owned by somebody else. And if they wanted to hire an AI in order to uh, create more of the same, the writer was, was was cut out. And I think we all know Hollywood's uh, appetite for extending work. So, uh, you know, th that was a really interesting strike. The writers got what they were looking for, which was uh, a piece of the action that AI could potentially generate. And the really telling thing is that SAG is still on strike. And they have a similar existential issue. 
this shows the value of uh, of people banding together and the power of it as well. So, you know, you have the Writers Guild thinking ahead about this existential issue having to do with new technology and AI. You've got SAG thinking ahead about this existential issue. And then you've got the United Auto Workers striking, responding to another evolution in technology, uh, which is electric vehicles, which you know have fewer parts, fewer moving pieces, so they require fewer people in factories. And then there's the battery issue as well. So, you know, one of the key elements in the in the United Auto Workers strike was: Are we going to be able to unionize the the battery factories as well and get our piece, maintain a union presence? across the stack for vehicle technology. So those two strikes involving hundreds of thousands of people were based on existential issues and negotiations have turned out successfully for the union members, which I think is very important. And if you take a look also at the big Kaiser strike recently. Wait, wait, uh, before we before we go on, Jeff, to the Kaiser thing about the, the United All the Workers, right? Because you don't hear them talk a lot about electric vehicle technology, but you hear them talk about the 40% raise demand, a uh, fair share as President Biden has you know repeatedly mentioned in support of, of the strike, right? The fair share of their income. So you hear the issue, the core issue is being made over the income and, and the increase of, of wages as opposed to direct response to electric vehicle technology as a threat to their employment. You know, I think that the simple answer is that we are all conditioned to hear strikes as conversations about wages and benefits. And, you know, I think in the past that that, you know, very frequently was the case. But Right now, we're seeing these waves of innovation spread across industries. And I think that, you know, people coming together in order to ensure that they're not completely disintermediated due to this new technology is an even more significant issue to think about. You know, the the Kaiser strike, which was nominally only about wages uh, and wages because why? Because because of burnout and burnout being such a problem in hospitals because they're not offering enough to attract people to replace the people who've burned out. I don't think the rank and file union members are greedy in any way. I think they're they're just responding to these these existential issues. And when we hear Biden lobbying for fair share, I think in part that's because he's uh, he's from a generation where where labor was present in all conversations, and he's he's helping them by anchoring high. So you know, thinking about your workforce when you're making these economic plans in response to the ways of technology and innovation that are moving across industry is really important. We need more connective tissue between workforce development, and economic development efforts. You know, and and everybody benefits. It shouldn't we shouldn't be at each other's throats. We ought to be working together thinking together. I'd like to jump in for a second. Since we are going to be discussing primary potential for economic, even social development, as the cost of living goes up, strike by union workers, of course, this is all ABC, basic economics. But let's remember that the teachers around this country are poorly paid in general, and people are not going into those professions in the same way that hospitals and other healthcare workers you just referenced. So I wanted to just bring that up as a parallel to this larger thing that gets the news, but nobody wants to hear about teachers striking and all that. I mean, that might be in the media a little bit, but just to put that in there alongside what you've been detailing, Jeff. James, such a great point. 
whether it's healthcare workers or teachers striking, you know, things would come to a standstill if healthcare workers and teachers were motivated solely by a profit motif, right? Because they could probably accomplish a lot if they were solely interested in their own welfare. But for the benefit of society, we need people to take care of our bodies. We need people to take care of our minds and to help our kids. And I think as we plan things out, we really need to plan with teachers, healthcare workers, the human beings who perform these sacred duties. We need to plan with their well-being in mind. I couldn't agree with you more, James. So important. If I may just real quickly, you know, we're not the only country in the world. However, oftentimes the United States views itself as the center of not only the world, but the universe. And, you know, I'm an American. I've seen this and thought that way myself. But other countries have already solved this education and workforce and health concerns for their citizens. Of course, if I indicate that the concept of a government somehow taking the money from tax revenue and then turning it back to support the welfare of their citizens... In America, I would be branded a socialist, and that's bad, right? But other countries have successfully got health care and education going. So I would just want to bring that up is a lot of what we're talking here today might be distinctly American, for better or for worse. James, that's such a great point. I couldn't agree more. I mean, this this whole teacher's thing, um, you know. The, the, the wage you talk about, the low wage, you talk about the long hours and the expectation that teachers would have to spend their own money to buy supply for the classroom. It's just ridiculous, right? I mean, if, if education is the most important aspect of our society, but yet it's an area that's way underinvested, way underappreciated, oftentimes they have to deal with, with a lot of very stressful situations. James, thanks for bringing it up. This will be a great topic for us to discuss where we talk about workforce, we talk about empowering Closing the talent gap in the future, teacher plays a key you know, part in, in solving that issue. I was just going to say that one of the ways that I think we somehow need to do that is to make teaching be regarded as a noble profession that young people actually are inspired by their teachers and want to go into the field. Interesting that you say that, James, and, and I'll just make this note. I grew up, I was born in Vietnam. And, and culturally speaking, you know, parents are regarded in, in and held in a very high esteem in any family structure, right? Whatever your parents say, that's final. But even in our culture, teacher is regarded above parent in that sense, where mm -hmm. teacher can overrule your parent. That's just the level of respect that you give to that profession. And then having, you know, come to the U.S. and attended high school and college here in the U.S. and hearing the conversation and the talk back and, and the level of communication to the teachers, oftentimes I was like, holy cow, it's crazy. Well, craziness aside, Charlie, what crazy things have you been seeing in the news? Yeah, there's there's been very interesting development. Grand Canyon University issued a statement last week on Department of Education and it's it's a very forceful, very strongly worded press release in that they allege the Department of Education, the Federal Trade Commission, the Department of Veteran Affairs unjustly targeting Grand Canyon University about its nonprofit status. Um, just a little bit of background here. You know, Grand Canyon University started out, was founded as a nonprofit and then briefly converted to for-profit. And then they returned to a nonprofit status around 2018. Um, so why is this important is, is that by denying the Grand Canyon of the nonprofit status, it allows the federal government to put more scrutiny 
on on its federal student aid, which is the main source of income for the university. And you know, it's it's another sign that the government continued to tighten the screw on the for-profit space. But what's really interesting, though, is having been a part of for-profit space in the last ten plus years, where for-profit players tend to just absorb the blows and then hope it flows over and shift and you know their strategy to just kind of let it let it plays out of course you're seeing these for-profit players are pushing back um such a divide suing department of education and now grand canyon recently also sued the department of education as well so it's it's a very interesting shift in terms of sentiment and the level of boldness that you know a lot of higher ed institutions are, are pushing back. That's interesting, Charlie. On another news, PricewaterhouseCooper or PwC um, recently announced plan to train 75,000 workers in U.S. and Mexico on AI. Now, it's, what's interesting is another big four player, the KPMG, also announced $2 billion investment in AI. In, incredible news, right? It's, it's another big market signal that AI is mainstream. Now, obviously, they have a firm belief that AI can drive efficiency and effectiveness and ultimately drive the bottom line for these large, large organizations. And, you know, as you know, Big Four business model historically relies on offshore, on outsourcing a lot of their, their low value tasks and activities to keep costs low. And by adopting AI, they get better work quality. They get much, much, much quicker turnaround time and a lot of operational gain in the process. And in a, a soft and economic environment where a lot of enterprise clients are scrutinizing the consulting scope, Big Four and other service-oriented organizations are now relying more and more on AI to drive efficiency, which allow them to be much more competitive in the market space. It's good to hear that PwC is investing and in training the people who work for them on how to use AI as a tool as, as opposed to disintermediating them, right? Correct. I, I assume that there's probably a significant portion of what KPMG is investing in AI that has to do with empowering their workforce, right? So they're planning ahead for these technologies in a way that empowers their workforce, it sounds like. I look forward to keeping our eye on that. Well, just to kind of clarify on that more, I mean, it's, it's they're teaching their workers on how to better leverage the AI technology to drive efficiency and effectiveness in their work, right? And so, as you can imagine there, the impact of the workforce there is you're going to need less workers to perform the same amount of, of work. Just an example, I'm intimately involved in an individual who works for KPMG where they leverage an offshore firm in India to do a lot of their low-level um, audit work. In the past, they would have to send a framework of you know the standard and then the actual work and for folks over there to compare and contract. Sometimes it takes weeks and then you get the result back. It's not exactly what you want. In this particular case, leveraging AI, they can do all of those things in real time with AI, get results back within seconds, right? Now, you're not going to get the right result the first time, but that's not any different than than working with human beings. But the point I'm making here is that you get in seconds in terms of return as opposed to weeks. You're able to iterate much quicker and you're able to get more done as a result of that. So it's very interesting. Right now, of course, AI as an emerging technology, and we tend to think that to be involved with AI, you really need to be a deep engineer, computer scientist to effectively even understand what it is. But I would liken it to something that's happened time and time again. In the late 70s and 80s, when corporations needed to all of a sudden give their workers this thing called a computer, personal computer, and then they wanted them to 
learn how to use spreadsheets. And now that's become ubiquitous. And it's expected if you work in a business that you know how to work a computer, spreadsheets, word processing package and all that. So I would posit that when AI becomes a utility, like electricity or network connectivity, and I believe it's not that far off, new careers are going to be needed for that next iteration of technology that we can't even see at the moment. But workers need to be able to adapt to that. So once again, education is important, but a lot of job offers I've seen recently are saying, hey, work in AI with no coding experience needed and make you know $80,000 a year. If you can work in AI, it becomes more like Apple compared to the PC at first, user-friendly kind of environment that you wouldn't need to be a PhD in computer engineering to do it. So I believe we're headed in that direction, but this is a transition time in which it's so new, everyone's still not knowing what to do with it. It's a great analogy, James, because you think about back in the days, you using your writing words on paper, right? And then you transition to a typewriter where if you screwed up on one letter or one word, you have to throw the whole thing away. And then you now you have a computer to your point where you can edit in real time and not waste things and gain more efficiency. So, I mean, I think that evolution is, is spot on. Great analogy with AI, because now you can do a lot of things with AI and gives you that level of efficiency. So to your point, you don't have to be a computer coder, you don't have to be a, an AI scientist, but you have to learn how to leverage the technology and use it to do your job, right? And that's one of the reasons the University of Florida, where I have the honor of working at, we're implementing AI across the curriculum. Every field from geology to anthropology to computer science to the arts, students are going to graduate with some exposure and fluency in aspects of AI and not necessarily coding. So that's being realized by some institutions. And uh, once again, that's going to move us towards AI becoming. Yeah. The only other piece of news I want to call out um, is, is around the education department recent shakeup of the OPMs and third party service providers for higher ed. And so if you're not familiar with it, OPMs, it's online program management. There tend to be an ed tech company providing online services and technology to support online learning. And so the Department of Education signaled that it would hold negotiated rulemaking to include third-party services as part of this scrutiny. So it certainly broadened the scope. Initially, it was squarely focused on OPMs to now across all third-party services. As you can see, I mean, that basically has a far-reaching impact to any institutions thinking about engaging a third party provider for any reasons. So what what's the big deal about? I mean, you know, OPMs and ad tech providers have been the main source of, of innovation and capital infusion. And then one can argue that they continue to play a, a key role in democratizing access to higher education. Jeff, I don't know if you remember this, but back in the days when we were delivering online learning at University of Phoenix, a lot of people said online learning is not real. That's not real education. Yeah, there, there was no ed tech then. Online education was not a utility like it is today, to, to borrow James' term. That's right. So now if you think about it, if you fast forward and you say this level of scrutiny will negatively impact and make a lot of investment companies thinking twice about investing in higher ed or investing in some sort of support service for academic institutions. You can draw your own conclusion there, but if I were an investor thinking about how do I bring innovation to universities, I'm going to be categorized or be scrutinized in that way. That may not be an area that's worthwhile in terms of return on investment or level of risk associated with it. Man, 
Well, I think I think that's it for our news section. But we've asked James to join us in this episode to share his view on on the value of college degrees. And so, let's turn our attention to James. Really appreciate and grateful that he's joining us today. Uh, James, what you got for us? Well, uh, I think the conversation so far has been really compelling in terms of looking at various aspects of economic development. Corporations, I believe, in the late 20th century, realized that. Oh, human resources are actually an important part of our uh, operation here. We need to cultivate aspects of that. And HR departments sort of rose up. And then we have the other developments in which investments and business, you know, capitalism, let's just call that generically, have evolved in some ways to, of course, maximize for the shareholders, but also at the same time to realize that the public at large does have some power in determining who they're going to spend their money with. So I believe people are at, still at the heart of the economics, the capitalism, and then the social and moral responsibility to educate our children. I believe most every parent would say that they want their child to have a life better than theirs. And so that brings us to education. I believe we need to invest more in primary and high school education and of course, from an economic perspective, executives have been found to say, well, you don't need this degree to be successful in our business. But I do believe that we need to look at more points, as Jeff puts it, connective tissue between various components of our society, capitalism, education, and also, of course, mental and physical health. Hey, James, I just quick question for you to follow up on that. We're seeing a lot of, of news recently about tech companies dropping a degree requirement for many of their entry-level positions. Why do you think that is? Why do you think they're doing that? Well, I think in the same way that I mentioned a little earlier that AI jobs now that are being advertised that don't require computer engineering or programming skills is because corporations need more knowledge workers that don't necessarily have to have a traditional PhD or master's or even bachelor's degree. So I think it's a, a matter of capital expediency because you're, you're going to have to pay a lot more money to people that have those degrees for them to accept the job than if you can say, okay, all you need to do in this job is focus on this area. Therefore, you don't need a liberal arts education. That said, you know, Google and others have started boot camps to teach just the skills that people need. Same in the gaming industry. You know, the gaming industry needs a lot of people, at least traditionally, to make video games. And they need to do it in a certain amount of time. But they don't need people that know about Chaucer and when the Magna Carta was signed and even what's in the Declaration of Independence. They just need people that can concentrate on video games. So those boot camps allow industry to actually pay less for the worker because of the skill sets required. And at the same time, Google's vice president for education and university programs has said that they still doubt that boot camp graduates can learn new languages and technologies as quickly as someone with a degree, especially a computer science degree. So, you know, there's this uh, tension between executives and people saying, okay, come on, our company is accessible to so many more people. Politicians saying that, of course, we want the people, the children, the adults of our state working, a strong economy. 
But at the same time, as things do get more specialized in advancing technology areas, if the United States of America wants to maintain the post-World War II supremacy in technological innovation, we have to have computer science engineers, AI engineers, and people that can push the front level. And that comes from the research being done at colleges and universities and some private corporations. Yeah. And you bring up a really interesting point here, James, which is the value of a degree as kind of a holistic preparation for innovation, for example, right? So learning to learn so that you can, no matter what the subject matter is, so that you can create more value in the workplace. One fella I used to work with who said, yeah, but, you know, are all degrees created equal? There are the pragmatic degrees in in technology and, and engineering, and then there are degrees in English literature. Are they all equal? James, is the point that you're making that there's a certain level of equity across degrees simply by virtue of getting a degree? Or, you know, what's your thought on that? Well, I would say that it's not cut and dry, but generally speaking, if you have a higher education experience on campus, traditionally, you interact with people that you would have never met previously, and you meet friends, and you do your homework together, and you learn, oh, you're from India? What's it like in India? Et cetera. That kind of experience allows you to be comfortable with working with people that aren't the same as you are especially as higher education diversifies. We're not all people from the same culture or background. Therefore, that multi-ethnic tapestry of higher education weaves something that can be brought to a corporate or business environment in terms of your team being able to work more efficiently. So I believe while the degrees just in terms of this is 120 credit hours and this one takes 160 and, and this one costs this much from Harvard and this one costs so much from a state college, there are certainly points that aren't equal. But I think it's the experience that you have during higher education that does put you in an environment or a sensibility to be more successful, not just for yourself, but with other people. So as our listeners work to empower and upgrade the U.S. workforce, it seems like the point is that we have to take a look at degrees in a long-term sense beyond a you know an immediate application like the beyond the boot camp perspective. Just a yeah. note on the boot camp because I think this is relevant to our yeah. conversation. When we did the research, and this is our own research of of you know the boot camp population, eighty six percent of all the boot camp graduates have at least a bachelor's degree. So it's not that the folks going into boot camps are basically without high school education or without college education and can just kind of walk into a highly intensive 90-day boot camp and learn how to program, how to code, right? So, you know, to your point about the liberal arts, a lot of these folks may have a degree in history, degree in marketing, whatever it is. And at some point they decide that, hey, that's not the area that I want to get into. Tech is more of my thing. Then they go through a boot camp, which is a more abbreviate, but they already have a, you know, the foundations needed for a lot of these programs already. That, that's such a great point, Charlie. And, and it just comes back to like what I'm hearing from James, which is we have to think about preparing the soil if we want things to grow, right? If we want to that's empower right. our workforce, we want to upgrade our workforce, we can't look at them as short-term providers because even with the boot camps, the people who are learning to learn see the value in expanding their learning all the time. 
And people who are always learning are going to be people who are more productive, more creative. James, one of the things that you've mentioned that I think people would appreciate hearing that I don't know anything about is not only the learning to learn, but the health of people who have degrees seems to be overall a little bit more robust. I mean, do people with degrees live longer? Well, it may be hard for some folks to believe, but a body of serious research by Princeton economist Ann Case and uh, Nobel Prize winner Angus Deaton actually proves that not only do college graduates do significantly better economically, but that the college educated are living longer in the USA than those without college degrees. Now, this is not a self-serving advertisement for college degrees, but rather an examination of the data over several decades. For example, in 1990, wealth was split fairly equally between those with and those without college degrees, which to me at least sounds about right. But three decades later, in the 2020s, an astonishing three quarters of the wealth is owned by the college graduates. And life expectancy in the United States has now fallen consistently for three years in a row. No other wealthy nation has exhibited this characteristic in the current era. Japan and Switzerland show lengthiest life expectancies, whereas Germany and Britain and the United States are among the worst. So what is up with that? Just look at the numbers from the early 2020s. Average lifespan of 84 years for the college educated and slightly less than 75 years for the non-degreed. So yes, it has been documented that a college education has multiple tangible benefits, both in terms of a longer life expectancy and, of course, economically. If all American citizens had the current college graduate life expectancy, the United States would be among the best rich countries in the world in terms of life expectancy, not among the worst. Wow. We talked a little bit about actionable insights at the beginning of the podcast. We want to wrap up with three things that our audience can do to go out and actually create value in an effort to upgrade the workforce. What are three things that you think our listeners ought to go out and do? Number one, support all young people in this country to successfully finish high school. If it takes them six years, fine. We know that when they come out with a high school degree, it means something. And they're then prepared to go into a vocation, if that's their choice, or higher education and a career, if that's their choice. Number two would be to create more 21st century mentors and apprenticeships. There's tremendous life value from people that have worked for 40 or 50 years that's being I would say wasted because they're not connecting that with young people during their formative years. We could do this if we made the connective tissue between older people with experience and young people that may know how to use the latest tech technology, but don't really know how to deal with problems using critical thinking and even social skills. And my third point is to consciously include soft skills in all degree and apprentice programs. Whether you're learning 
thing to be a coal miner or an airplane pilot or a person that works in astronomy. If you can work with other people, your team is going to be more productive. So those three things, support people to successfully finish high school, create more mentors and apprenticeships, and include soft skills in high school, apprentice programs, and of course, degree programs. Amen. Thank you, Brother James. Really appreciate uh, your insight and passion. You can hear it and really appreciate you coming on today. I'm so happy that you were here with us today, Professor. And on behalf of the Adventure Times team, this is Jeff Nelder. And Charlie Wynn. And we're saying thanks to all of you for tuning in today. And for what we hope is a growing interest in empowering upgrades in the U.S. workforce. So whoever you are, whether you're in ed tech, workforce or economic development, if you're a policymaker, industry investor, if you're inspired by empowering livelihoods, you're welcome to write to us at info at edventuretime, edventuretime.com, or simply visit Adventure Time to, to learn more about our guest host or parse through other episodes. And remember, if you got something to say, suggestions, questions, or comments, please write to us because we also invite members of our audience to join the podcast from time to time. Thanks for listening and take care. And as Charlie always says, let's go kick some butt.